you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. the Moan Broadcast Center. This is Take Two, me Martinez. The GOP can't seem to quit Trump. Find out which California congressman made the pilgrimage to Mar-a-Lago for a house-flipping game plan cram session. Plus, a busy intersection in Koreatown and a tragic collision in a crosswalk with the death of a four-year-old girl reveals about L.A.'s quest to eliminate traffic fatalities. It's all ahead on Take Two. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for being with us today. Coming up. This email will confirm the place and the date of their second dose appointment. I will allow them to register to confirm the time of the appointment. Yeah, well, yeah, we know. A lot of questions that you have about uh, getting that vaccine, and we're going to have some answers about that second dose coming up, so stay tuned. But first, it is Friday, so we're going to kick things off with State of Affairs. That's our weekly look at politics in the Golden State. And joining us this week is Christina Bellantoni, former assistant managing editor for the LA Times, now the director of USC's Annenberg Media Center. And Zach Corser is with us, co-director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Uh, hello to both of you. Greetings. All right. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom announced uh, an end to the statewide stay-at-home order on Monday. And it took everyone pretty much by surprise. It was kind of interesting to hear uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti say that uh, he found out pretty much like everyone else. You would think that he would have a connection, but uh, he didn't. Not in this case. And it uh, really raised alarms among some health professionals because, uh, for one, there there are three uh, virus strains or new virus strains that are showing up here in California. Christina, can you recap this uh, rationale when uh, Newsom first announced this? Yeah, you know, I mean, I I can recap. I can't defend. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, the, the argument is that you're seeing cases decline, right? There was a spike thanks to holiday travel mostly, and you're seeing it improve in some places. Um, and you know, returning to this tiered system that allows localities to have some control to set higher restrictions. I mean, here in Los Angeles, um, obviously, we we haven't gotten out of this uh, pretty bad predicament that we're in. You know, zero capacity in the ICUs, etc. But when you look at the numbers they are still dramatically higher than they were when the stay-at-home order went into effect to begin with at the beginning of December. And it is hard to look at this as not a political decision. You know, politicians make decisions that are inherently political. And I, I kind of compare this. I had an assignment for one of my students. I was teaching political reporting. And my student's final project was of his own choosing, examining how great Governor Gavin Newsom was doing handling the coronavirus. He even earned praise from President Trump and people were very pleased with what was happening in California. And just comparing, you know, not that many months later, um, we are in a a dire situation where people across the state, including many who supported him, are very frustrated with the lack of clarity. And you can point fingers in a lot of places, including at the federal government, but the inconsistency of message has contributed to this terrible position we're in right now. 
Yeah, and Christina, the interesting thing uh, about all of this is that, okay, so we went to a stay-at-home order and broke up the state into five different regions based on ICU capacity. Um, so that's how it was. And now we're coming out of that, uh, that uh, regional distinction for going back into those tiers, the purple tier being the one we're in in L.A. County, which is the most restrictive tier, based on future ICU bed capacity mid-February. And, and the thing about it, too, is that the system or the formula to come up with the projection wasn't exactly clear. So there were so many questions, Christina, that I think a lot of people's head went to the political aspect, as you said, because he's also got this recall effort that's hanging over him. So I'm wondering, uh, because Newsom said that all of that, is just complete and utter nonsense. His uh, his quote. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, they, it's there are politics at play in anything. He's under a lot of pressure. No one would envy this position, but he also could lose his position of power, and he has to act. And you know, the economy is the top concern of pretty much every politician, and it, it should be right. It goes hand in hand with the public health crisis here, and it's real bad. So I get that. Um, but at the same time, I, I sort of think about just how how the seesaw has not helped these numbers. And perhaps had things been like extremely restrictive, stayed restrictive, we might have got been in a different place right now. Zach, what do you make of the plan that was announced this week uh, that uh, Blue Shield of California will help coordinate distribution? Because the state has been really dealing with a vaccine rollout that has been as slow as molasses. So, so what did you think when that came down this week? Well, I was a little surprised. I saw this reporting yesterday. Um, I was surprised to the extent that it seems to have been worked out behind the scenes by advisors to Newsom. Uh, Blue Shield of California and also Kaiser will be part of this plan as well. I mean, there's a lot of room for improvement, clearly. This is moving very slowly, but I think there'll be some questions maybe asked about, you know, why, why Blue Shield? Uh, were there other ways to do this? Um, I think it's also interesting too to point out, you know, from look from a policy standpoint, um, one of the states that have done the best job of the vaccine rollout has been West Virginia, and one of the things that's distinguished them is they've decided to go it on their own. When they were presented with plans by the federal government, uh, they basically said, "No, that doesn't work for West Virginia." They didn't take a local approach; they took a sort of statewide coordinated approach that worked for West Virginia, uh, and it and they have had the most successful rollout. So. You know, one wonders why it is that California can't muster the same kind of resources within the state government to come up with a centralized plan. I, I do think it has something to do with hangover from the last administration, where there was a belief that this would be a very diffuse process of localities and states basically deciding how to do this with not much support from the federal government. And that's not worked out very well. So, you know, we're hoping for the best. But Zach, you compare West Virginia and California in terms of size, uh, geography and population, There's there are big differences. There are big differences. But what's interesting to me is that West Virginia tried to define what those differences were. Mm. They, get, they were presented with a one-size-fits-all plan from the federal government where Walgreens and CVS would essentially be in charge of the rollout for nursing homes and long care. And they said, hey, that doesn't work for us. We're a different kind of state. So yes, the scale makes a difference, but I think it's the planning and and the sort of understanding your state and how to best do this in your state. I think at that level, not the local level, but at the state level, variation is important. And I think they, they did a good job planning and think ahead. And I guess since uh, we brought it up, uh, Christina, the, the recall effort, what's your current forecast on how much trouble Newsom is when it comes to this recall or maybe a, a strong reelection challenger? 
there's a lot of energy behind this effort. And even here in LA, you see a lot of it, um, you know, just neighborhoods, you see signs out, you know, lack of confidence. Recalls tend to also be galvanized around, you know, an opposing candidate. And that for me um, hasn't emerged as somebody strong. And obviously Newsom not only was incredibly popular throughout the state when he won the seat to begin with um, throughout most of his governorship up until the last several months. Um, but, you know, when you have a clear cut examples of hypocrisy, you know, the dinner with his friends and some of the other items, that can really be a big problem. And I would say that this will be a real race um, if it goes forward. And the indications to me are that it will. And you know, he will put every effort of himself into fighting that off. And he is a very skilled politician. He has survived other things. Um, you know, the primary campaign um, in, to become governor was also pretty fierce. So, you know, does he survive it? Probably. I think, you know, as you as you know, we're going to be talking about this for a long time. Yeah, and Zach, uh, you know, a lot of comparisons are being made, even though the recall hasn't exactly happened yet, but a lot of comparisons are being made to, to Gray Davis uh, back over 20, 20, about 20 years ago. Um, I, I, Zach, California was a lot different back then. It wasn't as democratic uh, in terms of p- party preference as it is today. So even if a recall effort does happen, what do you see its chances of ultimately unseating uh, Gavin Newsom? Well, I think it's going to relate to performance, frankly. Um, you know, Newsom's done a pretty good job in terms of public opinion rating. You know, his in October, PPIC had him at 58%, and December, uh, measuring him on jobs and economic performance, still 58 And that's also over half of independents uh, in that sample saying that they approved of, of Newsom. But we're entering into, I think, an even more volatile political and economic situation. I mean, there, there are positives, obviously, you know, the fact that the state is facing an economic windfall, um, but there are also a lot of negatives. Uh, there's frustration at the rollout. Uh, there's frustration at um, the shutdown at schools. Um, things are becoming increasingly volatile. And Trump is no longer, you know, a sort of convenient person to point to and, and sort of place the blame. I think Newsom is going to have to take more and more responsibility for what's happening here in California. So each misstep that he has along the way, whether it's things like, you know, fraud and unemployment or an unsuccessful rollout to this vaccine, I I think each one of those missteps will be amplified by the recall effort and by the GOP. Uh, And it's going to make things difficult. And and worst of all, it's going to be distracting because he's going to need to be producing results. Um, And and instead, he's probably going to have to spend a lot of time pushing back politically. We're talking to Zach Corser, co-director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Also with us, uh, Christina Bellantoni from USC's Annenberg Media Center. Um, in Congress, uh, Democrats have been frustrated by Republicans' response to the election results and also the Capitol, uh, the attack on the Capitol, and it's pushed some to amp up their challenges to them in the next election. In Fresno, for example, uh, Democrat Phil Arbayo announced that he'll run against longtime incumbent Devin Nunes. Um, Christina, how motivated are California Democrats right now to take over Republican-held seats? I mean, as motivated as they can possibly be, right? The, the margins in the House right now are way too close for comfort for for the California Democrats that benefit from being in power, right? They hold chairmanships, they um, have a lot of clout, and obviously the speakership. 
And they don't want to lose that. In addition to there are a lot of very ambitious Democrats that would like to see some of the older Democrats in power, um, you know, retire or move along um, in their positions and then take them as well. So if they lose the majority, it's going to take many years to build it back. Um, and it's been such a seesaw since I started covering Congress you know, now nearly 20 years ago, um, all of the different power struggles. But it's also really hard to get a clear picture of what that's going to look like without the redistricting in place. Uh, these these districts are going to change and um, you have to have candidates, but you also have to know what those lines are and figure out what the messaging is. And I would expect that the swing districts that we have seen um, from 2016, 2018, when the Democrats were able to uh, flip all of those seats in Orange County in the Central Valley, I would expect those to remain the battlegrounds. And I would also expect to see some retirements. The The thing that people aren't necessarily talking about the Capitol insurrection, in part because there's some investigation and impeachment and all these other things surrounding it, is that a lot of members are saying this isn't worth it anymore. And so I would not be surprised to see many people um, slowly decide to not seek re-election and have some open seats. And that, you know, it's sort of all bets are off on who, who can win those. So there's going to be a ton of money spent and a ton of energy for Democrats to shore up those numbers. And Republicans also think claiming the House is possible. That would make it a free-for-all. Absolutely. Um, you know, speaking of another central Californian Republican, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy visited Donald Trump uh, in Florida yesterday to discuss a strategy for flipping the House back. Now, last Friday on State of Affairs, we talked about how McCarthy has flip-flopped on whether Trump deserves a blame for the insurrection and, and how he might be getting pulled right now between his uh, very pro-Trump district and some of the big corporate donors who've decided to stop writing checks to anyone who the election. Uh, Zach, what do you make of uh, Kevin McCarthy's visit to Trump in Florida? Well, I see it as part of a somewhat quick reversal of how the GOP is, is viewing Donald Trump. Um, you know, there's there's been some announcements made just this week that, for instance, Trump has been invited to the GOP spring donor meeting. Um, I think you've seen some big reversals amongst GOP senators right now on this question of impeachment, where they're either sort of dodging it by saying it's unconstitutional because he's left office or they've just moved away from the idea that he should be impeached at all. Uh, and I think there you know, has been some, if you want to call it success in, in sort of moving on from what happened this month uh, because of the pandemic, because of a new administration, because of concerns about the economy. And so, you know, Trump uh, is living to fight another day. And I think here's the one bit of data that I think all Republicans, including McCarthy, are thinking about is, they just do better when he's on the ballot. Uh, you know, you compare the Georgia special election to November. Uh, Republicans did very well in November and they didn't do so hot in Georgia. So I think despite all the negatives, uh, the GOP are still holding on to Trump. And we keep hearing about how some of the GOP want to move on from a former President Trump, but for McCarthy, uh, flipping the House means that he could possibly be Speaker of the House. So, Christina, does the end here, speakership and uh, GOP House control, justify the means, which in this case probably means keeping Trump's influence alive? Does it, is it justified for the Republican Party? It seems as if history is going to kind of decide that, that long-term question. Uh, for this, the Republicans have clearly made their calculation already. You know, as Zach points out in in the Senate, you know, this is going nowhere. They've signaled where they are um, after just a few short weeks. You know, tempers are really cooled, and they've cooled for a reason. They they know their constituencies. They look at polls. They are talking to people, and they have made a calculation that um, shunning Trump is much more of a risk than embracing him. And uh, I would not be surprised to see whether it's a true third party and not 
Trump starting a third party, but just, you know, this is an extremely fractured party that I'm not sure how many people can can continue on when they look at that arc of history and they make those determinations about, you know, who you stood with and who you didn't. And hopefully we're not looking at any future violence or tragedy. And um, that's something that I know my Democratic sources in the House are very worried about. Uh, they do not feel that January 6th was the limit to that. There's um, still many threats. And you know, we've obviously seen those here in California. And so so that's a very long way, I guess, of saying that McCarthy has made his decision. And, and probably if he decided that it would value him, it probably will um, be valuable to him and uh, his long-term ambitions. That's Christina Bellantoni, former assistant managing editor of the L.A. Times, now director of the USC Annenberg Media Center, and Zach Corser, co-director of the Policy Lab at Claremont McKenna College. Zach, Christina, have a great weekend. You too, eh? Thanks. A busy intersection in Koreatown, Olympic and Normandy. Morning rush hour, lots of cars on the road, lots of pedestrians uh, in the sidewalk. Horrible tragedy as a young mother crosses the street with her daughter. What the death of a four-year-old girl in L.A. means for L.A.'s quest to eliminate traffic fatalities. That's coming up when Take Two continues in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app, Ami Martinez. For five years now, city officials in Los Angeles have talked a lot about reducing traffic deaths through a program called Vision Zero. But the thing is, the number of people who've died in traffic collisions in L.A. has actually gone up during this time. Why is that? I mean, it's, of course, complicated, but LAist reporter Ryan Fonseca has decided to look into it. He joins us now to discuss his story, which centers on the tragic death of a four-year-old girl killed by a driver while walking with her mother in a crosswalk in 2019. Ryan, all right, so uh, tell us about Alessa Farhado. Alessa was, in many ways, sort of the typical four-year-old that you might have come across in your life. She was very bright, inquisitive, kind of starting to develop her her personality, becoming a, a assertive person, someone who liked to learn. Uh, her parents say she was uh, compassionate and very opinionated and uh, very protective of her little sister, Clarissa. Now, okay, so what's your understanding of what happened that day, the day that uh, she was killed? Right, yeah, I, I spoke with, with her parents uh, and her mother, Erica, kind of walked me through how it was just the typical morning. This is, you know, pre-pandemic, so uh, kids were still going to school, and uh, Alessa went to a preschool that was honestly just like less than a block away from uh, the family's apartment. And so, kind of typically, like any morning, she you know put her sweater on, her backpack, grabbed her lunchbox, and then her mom walked with her uh, to school, where they uh, they crossed at the intersection of Olympic and Normandy in Koreatown pretty much every morning through the week. Erica and Alessa were waiting for the pedestrian beacon to cross, waiting for the light. They got the light. Uh, Erica sort of did what she always does. She looks over her. Uh, left shoulder to make sure no one's going to turn right into them. She looks across the street to make sure no one's coming to try to make a left. 
she told me everything was all clear, and, and then they started walking. And that was the last time I saw my baby alive with her eyes and smile. So as I turned, there was no chance for me to do anything, but the, I see the car hitting me. So I spoke with police investigators as well, and, and what they found was that what had happened was a woman had turned left from Normandy to make a left onto Olympic. Uh, she crossed directly into the crosswalk, and, and uh, for whatever reason, she says she just simply did not see Erika and Alessa, and she struck them both and uh, killed Alessa as a result. In the end, you know, she turns out to be a heartbreaking statistic of what we're going to talk about. So how many pedestrians in L.A.? have been killed over the last five years or so. Uh, it is really unfortunate. It's, it's usually over 100. That year that she was killed, she was one of uh, 134 people who were killed by drivers while walking in the city. And uh, over the past several years, it's been uh, around that number, kind of in the, the 120s, 130s. Uh, and so that's been a, a notable spike uh, that started kind of around 2015 and 16. Now, Ryan, you mentioned the intersection Olympic and Normandy in Koreatown, that intersection uh, where she and her mother were hit. Uh, it, it was on the city's radar, wasn't it, for being a, a dangerous one? Yes, it had been for, for years, actually, even before Alessa was born. Uh, the city had, had ranked uh, that intersection several times in several different sort of ranking systems as a dangerous spot for pedestrians uh, and particularly for children who were crossing to get to the school on the corner. Now, another element to this is how we talk about traffic deaths, because the uh, standard framing is that they are accidents, but you call that a misnomer. Explain uh, why. Yeah, and that's sort of what sort of got me on this this story uh, to dive into it in a more, you know, deep way in the first place is as I was, you know, reading about the initial collision and Alessa's death uh, from, you know, local TV news reports, it was just sort of quickly and automatically framed uh, as a tragic accident. That's what the police were calling it. That's what uh, local TV reporters were referring to it as uh, in their reporting, kind of that same day reporting. And so I just kind of thought about the fact that we don't really dive in beyond sort of that initial uh, breaking news headline of, of what you know this actually means for people. And so I think accident is is an incomplete term. And, and I think we treat it in the news business as sort of this neutral term, but it really has a lot of connotations that you know are unfair to put on a situation that we haven't fully explored. And I spoke with Jaime Ferrada, who's Alessa's dad, and he he sort of had some thoughts about that word accident and how uh, it's used uh, by news reporters. I do think that um, in some respects, how the media um, describes it or, or pronounces it has a, a big impact on how the people who listen to it perceive it as, you know. Um, to think it's an accident oh it's not not a big deal it was an accident and because it's it's labeled as such um i don't think people worry that much about the repercussions if they were to take someone's life um you know by quote-unquote accidentally hitting them with the car you know so it has ramifications beyond just sort of how reporters kind of use it as this sort of boilerplate term and characterization of, of a collision. But again, sort of when you dive a little deeper and, and think about about uh, these patterns in traffic violence that we see, uh, the word accident feels like an injustice. Yeah, because if it's an accident uh, and it can't be avoided, then maybe there's no urgency to fix something that needs to be fixed. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense to uh, find a better word. Now, it, it's been a while since uh, we've talked about Vision Zero, but it was such a huge deal, Ryan, when it was unveiled. How is it supposed to work and why hasn't it worked? It really takes the approach that collisions and deaths are preventable on the street, and it's just a matter of priorities and infrastructure. Uh, so Vision Zero kind of designs 
seeks to redesign streets um, around this idea of self-enforcing streets. So uh, sort of how they identify the problem is that, you know, the streets are designed for, for cars and for drivers and drivers like to go fast and drivers like to uh, sort of have the right of way. Uh, but the way that streets would be redesigned under this plan, you know, on paper at least, is to increase protections for the more vulnerable road users, as in uh, people walking, people biking, skateboarding, and that kind of thing. So the reason it's not working, though, really, kind of comes down to funding. Uh, the city really hasn't put a lot of money in this program. Uh, when it first launched, the first couple of years, it didn't actually do any improvements. It kind of spent a couple of years in a in a design and sort of planning phase. When you look at other cities like New York City that implemented their own Vision Zero program, they really uh, hit the ground running and they were putting out uh, hundreds of improvement projects every year. And LA to date uh, has 63 total projects, either completed, planned, or in the works. And uh, Alessa's case, for example, that, that intersection had been already in a planning phase for a while to include leading pedestrian intervals at the crosswalk, mm. which would basically, that means that the, the crosswalk beacon turns a few seconds before the corresponding traffic light. So that gives pedestrians like a three to seven second head start oh, to get yeah, across yeah. the intersection. Yeah. And it's been proven to increase safety. Uh, and again, at the very intersection, the very crosswalk where Alessa was killed, there was a uh, sort of a plan to put one in place, but it had not been funded, uh, mm. even though it had been up for for funding back in 2018. And now, Ryan, with the pandemic, I mean, funding and finances are are stretched even even thinner than they were before. Um, but at the same time, people are still driving. People are still walking, uh, you know, across crosswalks. So, I'm wondering, have you gotten a response from the city about your reporting? Because I'd love to know what they might be doing to try and at least. Uh, make these incidents as avoidable as possible. Yeah, I spoke with uh, Salita Reynolds, and she's the general manager for the city's Department of Transportation. And, uh, you know, she said it, it, as much as her department wants to make safety a priority, uh, it's sort of one of these competing priorities at City Hall. And so funding has been something she's constantly advocated for. Uh, a few years ago, uh, when the Vision Zero budget was up for debate, she had advocated uh, you know, a certain amount in the millions of dollars to get the program on track. And she was, uh, the program was only uh, given a fraction of that money. And so I think there's some frustration at, at that level as far as, you know, not getting uh, funds at a level that will actually have the department able to go out and make changes, uh, you know, on sort of a, a wide scale. What about driver accountability? Why wasn't the woman who, who killed Alessa charged with a felony? And what's happening to her now? as I kind of looked into how often drivers are actually charged and, and what kind of charges they face uh, after killing someone with their car, uh, you kind of see that there is uh, a good percentage of drivers never actually get charged. And then uh, occasionally what happens is uh, a vehicular manslaughter charge, which would you know, be the charge you would assume would be charged, is actually charged down to the city level and becomes a misdemeanor. So in the case of the driver that killed Alessa, she uh, was not arrested at the scene. Uh, she was found to be, you know, not driving under the influence, but she was driving without a license. But she was not arrested at the scene. She was later charged after an investigation with uh, vehicular manslaughter without gross negligence, uh, which basically means the police couldn't find uh, in their investigation that she uh, acted with with sort of overt negligence. That would be something like, obviously, if she had been under the influence or if she had been uh, proven to have been texting while driving, that would have sort of uh, created a, a bigger charge and might have been then constituted uh, it being a felony. And so the, the woman who killed Alessa, her uh, her case is actually still pending. She was due in court uh, back in November for an arraignment that she did not show up for. 
And uh, so a warrant is now out for her arrest. Ryan, one more thing um, to Alessa's family. I mean, how are her mom and dad doing? Yeah, it's been a little over a year now since since they lost Alessa. Uh, I've been in touch with them, you know, since uh, about a year ago. I first met with them, and obviously, it was it was still very raw and real. But through it all, they really have have been focusing on giving love and attention to their younger daughter, Clarissa, uh, and you know, trying to sort of honor Alessa's memory by doing all the things with Clarissa they did with Alessa. And uh, also at the same time, um, I asked them, you know, are they considering moving? Because this, it's I'm really struck by the fact that this family lives, you know, just a few yards away from where uh, Alessa died and they use that crosswalk. You know, they, they walk those streets still um, regularly in their community. And so I, I asked uh, Erica and Jaime, are you planning to move? And they said, no, you know, this is our home and we want to see changes here um, so that the next child can be saved. That's Ryan Fonseca with Elias talking to us about his most recent article about the struggles to lessen the number of traffic deaths occurring in L.A. You can read uh, more about it at LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Ryan, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ed. Now, since we first spoke to Ryan on Tuesday, the Los Angeles Department of Transportation contacted him to let him know that on Wednesday, just two days ago, new safety features were installed at the intersection of Olympic and Normandy, including at the crosswalk where Alessa died. Now, just to point out, these changes were made 15 months after she was killed and two days after Ryan Fonseca wrote his story about her death. You can read more about the safety improvements at laist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. All right, so far on the show, we've had uh, partisan politics and traffic collisions. So I don't know about all of you, but I think I'm ready for some music. Some music to... Feed and Heal the Soul. That's coming up when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. Ever had times where all of your feelings about everything happening in your life and in the world just slam you like a giant wipeout wave that knocks the words out of your mouth before you can even say them? Then there you are, desperately wanting to speak, but speechless. Well, this, my friends, is where music comes in. To say all the things you want to say, but better. Whenever we here on Take Two need music in our lives, we call our guides, music journalist Oliver Wang and music supervisor Morgan Rhodes. They host the podcast Heat Rocks, and they've each chosen three songs for the mood of the moment this month. Morgan, let's start with your first pick. My first one, Stevie Wonder, a song that I love called Yester Me, Yester You, Yesterday.
You know, Morgan, a few years ago, Stevie Wonder was at a KPCC gala, the big event that we used to throw every year back when we used to be able to shake hands. And, and I shook his hand and said hello, took a picture with him. And I almost haven't washed my hands since because those are the fingers that have tickled those ivories over the years to produce songs like this. Indeed. And this one comes from his album, My Sharia Moore, 1969, um, a classic album and a classic tune. And I picked it because I think it really speaks to the range of emotions folks are dealing with locally, globally, nationally. I think people have been asking, like, you know, what happened to the world we knew? It's a collective lament of the life we knew before the pandemic, uh, before March 2020, what we've lost, who we've lost. Um, this is a, an album full of love songs, and this is a love song, but I think it yields a lot of fruit in the fact that it speaks to um, our feeling of loss and our reflection on what we, we have. I think the, the lyrics can be applied really broadly. Now it seems those yesterdreams were just a cruel and foolish game. All right, perfect way to lead us off. Uh, Oliver Wang, you're next. So I'm also taking things back to the 70s, and uh, this is Errol Dunkley from 1972 with Darling Ooh. Like many of us, I've been spending, I think, too much time watching things on different streaming channels, and I was absolutely intrigued by Steve McQueen's relatively new Small Acts anthology series, which are five different films all about the black British experience from, I believe, he starts around the 1960s and uh, up through the 1980s. And for maybe obvious reasons, just given my musical taste, I just love the second film in the series, which was entitled Lover's Rock which takes place over the course of an evening at a reggae-powered house party. And one of the songs that's featured in the episode, and the soundtrack for the entire episode is incredible, is this very sublime ballad by Errol Dunkley. And I think music aside, you know, the whole Small Axe series, which, uh, and, and, you know, every episode has just amazing soundtracks, is I think it's a valuable way to compare and contrast the, you know, the, the ways in which uh, you know, racialized communities in both the U.S. and U.K. have uh, found points of resistance and resilience uh, that I think creates useful parallels to understanding how race works in both countries in both similar and different ways. And so the Small Act series is, is both musically and inter from an entertainment point of view very enjoyable. But you're certainly learning something along the way, and, and those lessons, I think, are very pertinent, especially in this point, current moment in history. All right. Uh, perfect way to follow up, Oliver. Morgan, back to you. Ah, uh, yes. Um, Al Green, 1973, uh, a song called Stand Up. See, Morgan, that is a song that my dad, who was a lifetime trumpet player, would love. He loves anything with horns in it. Yes, and my dad loves anything with Al Green. And this is uh, Al Green's sixth album, um, widely regarded as his masterpiece. Nine tracks on it, and Stand Up is uh, the standout track. I like it, and it sort of speaks to the mood today because of the lyrics. You've been promised just one day, and that's today. Um, stand up and identify yourself is what he's saying and I think uh, what, it, what it is asking of us is to redefine who we are in this moment yeah. 
Everyone's got to stand up, either for yourself or people who can't stand up for themselves. I mean, that's the that's a great two uh, two word phrase: stand up, because it means so much. Oh, we're, indeed. Yeah, we're talking to Morgan Rhodes, Oliver Wang. They're the hosts of the podcast Heat Rocks. Uh, Oliver, your next pick. Still sticking in a backwards looking mode, in, in a sense, and this is Funk Incorporated's "Let's Make Peace and Stop the War" from their Chicken Lickin' album, 1972. Let's make peace. Oh, let's make peace. I was uh, recently cataloging some of my records and I had totally forgotten about this gem of a B-side track by Indianapolis's Funk Incorporated, who mostly recorded instrumental songs, but this is a rare vocal tune from them. And obviously it's in, in response to the Vietnam War. And you know, I think for the last four years, I have certainly spent a lot of time thinking about the parallels between uh, Nixonian and Trumpian America in terms of the social unrest, political corruption, community fracturing, etc. And perhaps I'm being a bit ungenerous in saying this, but I did think that, you know, that, that era of Nixonian America gave us some incredible music. Kind of feel like the last four years didn't quite live up uh, to the challenge, uh, but maybe we need some more time to absorb and co- and reflect uh, later on. I think everyone's tired, Oliver. Okay, fine. <laughs> Wait fine. till this year for the music to come back. I think everyone's just tired, yeah. All right, uh, now each of you has uh, one picked left. Uh, Morgan, let's uh, go with you. It's Shirley Horn and uh, a song called Light Out of Darkness. Love glows like a candle in the window. Her voice just, it does something to me. It's so swoony. Um, Obviously, I have love uh, for all the jazz greats, Carmen, Ella, Sarah, Dinah, and Billy. But I always return to Shirley Horn. It's just that combination of sort of smoky and sultry and her phrasing. And this is from a tribute album uh, to Ray Charles, 1993. Uh, So recorded uh, a little bit before she passed away. And what I like about this song is that it's hopeful. Uh, It is sort of a a call to arms to find um, the light in the darkness, that somewhere in um, everything that's dark in the world and dark in your spirit, there is a light. And though it aches, uh, we have to bring it out. So I really think it taps into um, the hopefulness, um, even as we try and uh, navigate this new normal and uh, this, this space that we're in in the world. And in the night, it brings light. darkness and the light will guide you all right oliver wang you are the anchor in this musical relay race i'm gonna break from the two previous songs and talk about something that's actually brand new and this is from valerie june featuring the great carla thomas it's called call me a fool Call me a fool Call me a fool Play hard for Bone. 
So despite all of my thinking about the past with my other picks, I do spend a little bit of time anchored in the present and thinking about the future. And one of the things I'm looking forward to most in 2021 is Valerie June's new album, which uh, which just got announced uh, the, just this past week. The title is The Moon and Stars, Prescriptions for Dreamers. Um, and it comes out in mid-March, but she just released this new single, Call Me a Fool, ahead of the LP. Uh, as I mentioned, it features the Southern soul legend Carla Thomas on it. Uh, and if I can just plug real quick, Morgan and I just had Valerie on our podcast, and she is absolutely the best. And to me, there are uh, worse ways to start off the new year than settling into the keening curls of Valerie's very, very distinctive voice. Oliver Wang and Morgan Rhodes are the hosts of the podcast Heat Rocks. Get it on Apple Podcasts and grab the Take Two podcast while you're there as well. Oliver Morgan, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you, too. You know, my mom is getting her first dose of the vaccine. Uh, actually, right about now, she should be in line at Dodger Stadium. ¿Cómo estás, mami? Te quiero mucho. Tu hijo te ama mucho. She's listening to me. What do you want me to do? i got to say hi to her. I'm wondering, though, about the second dose and if it'll be there when she's ready to get it. We'll answer those questions when Take Two continues. Stay with us. I can't stand the rain against my window Bringing back sweet memories Yeah, when the rain Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC. In most places, uh, you get a podcast. I'm e. Martinez. Now we turn to the COVID vaccine. Securing a first dose of one of those coveted COVID-19 vaccines is no small feat, but it's not where the journey ends. The vaccines available in Southern California right now require not just one, but two doses. And hundreds of you who have managed to get your first dose have reached out and told us that getting that second dose has been really confusing. Our community engagement reporter, Carla Javier, has been looking into your questions and concerns and helped write our new guide, How to Get the Second Dose of the Vaccine, on LAS.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. Carla is uh, here with us now. Carla, set the stage for us here. Uh, what's up with these second doses? So right now, there are those two different COVID vaccines available and authorized for emergency use here, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Like you said, they both require two doses. So if you got a Pfizer shot, you should get another Pfizer shot as close to 21 days after the first one as possible. For Moderna, that interval is 28 days. All right. So you need that second shot for sure. How do people get it? Well, you need an appointment, and how you get that appointment really depends on where you got your first shot. Uh, some vaccine providers are saying they will automatically book that second appointment for you and that they'll let you know through a text or an email notification. Others say they'll reach out to you when it's time to book one, but you have to find a date and time yourself. Some places will let you book both your first and second dose appointments at the same time. And in places like Riverside County, for example, they're encouraging you to book a second dose appointment wherever you can find one. So as you can see, there really isn't a single answer. That's why we called around and compiled everything we know in that guide on LAS.com. That's right. LAIST.com in case uh, people mm -hmm. are wondering. All right. So let's break it up, uh, Carla. What happens if you get your first shot in Los Angeles? 
So if you went to a big public va uh, vaccination site in the LA area, the first thing you have to figure out is if you were at a city-run site or if you were at a county-run site. The city sites, like the one at Dodger Stadium, I heard you mentioning earlier, and Hanson Dam, are run by the fire department. They give out the Moderna vaccine and now use this site called Carbon Health to book appointments. And last night, Mayor Eric Garcetti emphasized uh, that second dose appointments are guaranteed. Here's how he described the booking process. If you're getting your vaccine at a city of Los Angeles run site, you'll receive an email and a text message three to seven days before your second dose appointment. If you signed up by phone, we'll give you a call. We'll tell you where to go and when. Now, I should say, A, that we're hearing a lot of confusion about this, especially among people who had gotten their first shot before the city updated its appointment booking system. But the city says you'll still get notified about a second appointment, maybe not immediately, but a few days before the window. All right. So that's the city of L.A. How's that uh -huh. different from the county of L.A.? So the county of L.A. is distributing the vaccine at places like the Forum, Magic Mountain and um, Cal State Northridge, among others. L.A. Public Health Director Barbara Ferrer also emphasized that the county is guaranteeing those second doses, too. She told reporters on Wednesday that public health has started emailing people about their second dose appointments. Here's how she described those emails. This email will confirm the place and the date of their second dose appointment. I will allow them to register to confirm the time of the appointment. And I really want to emphasize here that you need to respond to this email when you get it. There should be a registration link in there to confirm an appointment time. And if you're worried, you know, public health has emphasized that the county is prioritizing these second doses when it gets its vaccine allotments. And right before I joined UA, L.A. public health officials confirmed that going forward when you book your first shot, the website will now allow you to book your second appointment at the same time. So hopefully that will help prevent some of this confusion in the future. A lot to process, Carla. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just the big picture for the city of L.A. and for the county of L.A. But our guide on LAist really does go into more detail about other sites in L.A. and about what happens if you got your vaccine in Orange, Riverside, Ventura or San Bernardino counties or if you got it somewhere like a health office or a pharmacy. Okay, one last question, Carla. What okay. if you can't get your second dose uh, right on the 21st or the 28th day? So the CDC has updated its guidance on this and says that while you should still aim to get your second dose as close as possible to those um, intervals, there's still a little bit of wiggle room if they're not available. That's up to 42 days or six weeks from the first shot. And again, a, I just want to emphasize that what I've shared with you is how officials and spokespeople say this is supposed to work. But a lot of people have reached out to share how it is actually going for them. And there is still a lot of confusion out there. Some people haven't heard anything. Some people were just told to show up. We want to hear about these experiences and these questions. That really helps inform our future reporting about this. All right, that's KPCC Community Engagement Reporter Carla Javier, and you can get in touch with her on our website, las.com, or on Twitter at Carla M. Javier. Carla, thanks a lot. Thanks, A. All right, finally, the skies uh, should be clearing soon, and if your weekend is looking just as clear, we can help you out. 
I'm KPCC's Leo Duran. And A. Martinez, if the pandemic wasn't one reason to stay at home, SoCal is now experiencing the Arctic. Well, you know, to most thin-skinned Angelinos, <laughs> rain and 50 degrees is Arctic. But we've collected ideas on what to do this weekend that are still fun events to go to, even if you never leave your front door. How dare you talk down to me, Mr. Wisconsin? All right, what's up first? (laughs) Well, put your snow boots away. Normally, this is the time of year Angelinos willingly travel to the snow for the Sundance Film Festival in Utah. Of course, it heads online this year, so you can actually watch those big films on your home screen. And on top of films, there's going to be Q&As, filmmaker talks, and more. You'll have more than 70 films plus a ton more projects to choose from between now and next Wednesday when the fest ends. Watch them anytime and tickets start at 15 bucks. All right. Uh, what's something if I miss uh, laughing in crowds? Then go to Sketchfest. It is this annual comedy festival in San Francisco, but it heads online this year, so you can see it too here in SoCal. And this thing, by the way, pulls in big names. So this year, they're expecting Kids in the Hall, David Cross and Bob Odenkirk, Aisha Tyler, Christopher Guest, and more. They all make appearances. It is set up like a variety show, and it starts tomorrow at 5 p.m. Tickets to watch start at 20 bucks, and it all helps to fundraise for the fest. All right, nice. Uh, Finally, Leo, what if I have cabin fever and just have to step outside? And I said cabin fever, not an actual fever. Yeah. You can freshen up your cabin by shopping for some cool furniture and decorations because tomorrow, starting at 5.30 a.m., very early, it's the Long Beach Antique Market. Wear your masks and stay physically distant, but this swap meet flea market is a great way to find new things to bring into your home. I mean, actually, I have this homemade wood and steel bench that I got from there years ago when I first moved to L.A., and it was only $150. You get some great deals. So when you go yourself, admission starts at 8 bucks. Now, there are still a bunch more events to go to, whether it's online or in person, safely. Find out what you can do this weekend by heading to our site, laist.com. That is L-A-I-S-T dot com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Leo Has a Cat. That's KPCC's Leo Duran. Leo, thanks a lot. Cool. Thanks, eh? It's so funny. I tell my mom that I love her on the show, and the text comes in, like, before I even finish finish what I was saying, the text comes in, yo te amo más. I love my mom. All right. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. You can find me on Twitter at, uh, at A. Martinez LA. That's at A. Martinez LA. Take two uh, is back on Monday at 2. Talk to you then. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.